Well, it's good to see you guys after a week of just, I know, tons of serving. There's a lot to do this week. Several people moving, had some scraping of a house to prepare it for painting and all that. So uh, thank you for serving one another so well. It's such a a wonderful and encouraging thing to see. And also, if if you get a moment, uh, we have... I think six people serving in uh, in family ministry this morning, and um, they were some of the people who moved and helped move this week. So if you get a minute, uh, make sure to thank them. Also, the hospitality team, those serving this morning. It's just it's been a long week for a lot of you guys, and and for uh, several people to come in and, and serve this morning in, in such a way is just so. Uh, sacrificial and uh, so exemplary, and, and we should be thankful for that. So uh, if you get a chance, make sure to thank them, the Bronze, um, the, uh, the Valerios, and then Brittany and Bashar as well. So if you get a chance, make sure to thank them. Um, uh, that would be wonderful. Um, well, we're going to look at John twenty nineteen through 23. John twenty nineteen through Twenty-three. If you want to open your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there are white and blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those. Turn to John twenty nineteen through twenty-three, which is on page five hundred and twenty-nine in those Bibles, and it should be the same for both the blue and the white paperback Bibles. Uh, if not, it'll be close at least. Uh, so go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, take one of those white uh, or blue paperback Bibles home with you. We'd love for you to take that home, make it your own. Uh, and, and to read it every day. It's a wonderful thing to do. Read the Bible. We believe that this is God's voice to us. And so uh, let's read it now. John 20, 19 through 23. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, you can stand when you're ready. But even if you're not ready, we're going to get started. Read it. On the evening of that day, The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I I thank you for this church, this local church body, and for all of the various gifts that you've given this people, for all the wonderful ways that each of these individuals serves and builds up the body. Lord, as we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 last week, and as we saw such a an exemplary example of this, uh, this week. I'm just so thankful for that. And I also ask, Lord, that as we look at this text, that you would encourage us and exhort us 
and commission us to serve in that same exemplary way, to serve the world in that same exemplary way. To serve uh, faithfully and sacrificially. To announce the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and that forgiveness has come in him to warn of the coming judgment. Lord, as, as we are gathered here this morning, much the same, similarly to, to the way that the disciples were gathered here on Easter evening, would you help us to not be content to just be a church that gathers, but to be a church that scatters faithfully as well, to announce the forgiveness of sins to our city, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment, and all the various cracks and crevices of this city that you send us into. Would you help us to be faithful witnesses and faithful representatives and ministers of Jesus Christ? And we pray that this sermon would be presented to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, this is the eighth week into a nine-week sermon series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, uh, where we saw that the Holy Spirit equips us to serve the church. The Holy Spirit equips the church to serve the church. He equips us with spiritual gifts to serve one another. And it very much concerned our life together as the family of God and how we serve one another, how we build one another up. And And this week's text is no less important for our life together as the family of God, but it concerns our life together in a a different sense. The the Spirit equips us to serve one another in this sort of internal life of the church, yes, but He also equips us to serve the world, to to turn our gaze, to fix our uh, face on the world and to serve there. He equips us for this external work as well. The local church doesn't just exist for the sake of its members, The local church exists for the sake of others. The local church is here for the sake of the world. And uh, that's what we see in the words and actions of Jesus in this text. He comes upon a a frightened group of his followers and he fills them with his peace and he sends them into the world as an extension of his mission, which is an overwhelming, impossible to fulfill order. And so they need the proper equipment. They need the proper equipment, which he promises to them. He promises them the power of, of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And the Spirit is going to equip them for this work, for the sake of the world. And then he closes, Jesus closes with giving them the message which they are to announce. And so our big idea this morning is that Jesus sends his disciples in the power of the Spirit to announce the forgiveness of sins. Jesus sends his disciples in the power of the Spirit to announce the forgiveness of sins. We'll unpack that by looking at the commission, the power, and the announcement. First, the commission. Uh, now, this is just one of several post-resurrection appearances recorded in John's gospel, uh, and they each have a, have a particular purpose, a sort of life-transforming purpose. And this passage is no different. It's wonderful, uh, wonderfully life, life-transforming. It's got a specific purpose. Uh, so the disciples uh, had no doubt heard from Mary Magdalene about the resurrection of Jesus at this point. Uh, as he had first appeared to her in the text before this one, and, and she's the sort of apostle to the apostles, they say. Uh, and, and their response to this news that Jesus has been raised is, is thick with irony. Now, because on the very day that Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death, the disciples are panicked 
and cowering. They're hiding. Instead of being filled with wonder, love, and awe, they, they're gathered in one of their homes. They're cowering in fear. They're, they're afraid of being found out, of being arrested, of being persecuted, of being marginalized. And verse 19 says this, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So they heard about Jesus' resurrection and they're afraid of what the Jewish and Roman authorities might do when they hear of this too. The disciples will likely be accused of stealing the body of this big conspiracy, starting, uh, be accused of starting this big conspiracy, which we know happened. And uh, this could just lead to all sorts of trouble. And so they're panicking. And in the midst of their panicking, Jesus shows up and he turns their panic into peace with a word, with his presence. Jesus came in and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, understand this peace be with you is is not just a greeting. Um, Yes, it's true that shalom, you know, peace be with you. It's a kind of typical greeting in Jewish culture. Uh, You know, it's just something you say to one another as you pass a friend in the street. Uh, but, But this is much more than a greeting. Jesus is is saying uh, this peace has come. The fullness of blessing has come. That's what shalom is. It's the fullness of blessing. This shalom has come. The fullness of blessing has come. And the fullness of blessing is standing right in front of you. That's why he shows them his hand and his sides. And it's in seeing this that they are glad. They know that true peace, lasting peace, lasting shalom, lasting blessing has come in him. They're standing. He's standing right in front of them. He shows them his hand and his side. And he says, here's peace. Peace with God is found here, which is the beginning of shalom. That's where shalom uh, is, is ultimately comes from. The fullness of peace is found here, and this peace I give to you, he says to them. And he showed them his hands and his side as a confirmation that his words are true. But, but, listen, the disciples are not just recipients of this shalom. They're not just recipients of this, this declaration of peace so that they can go home and keep it to themselves. No, notice he says this word of peace to them again, and it's connected with their commission. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This peace is given to Christ's disciples so that Christ's disciples might be agents of his peace in the world. Now, it's clear that that the central phrase and purpose of this text, this resurrection appearance, the purpose of this text is found in those three little words, I send you. That's the central purpose of this text, that Christ's disciples would be commissioned. Now, I want you to understand that commissioning, sending, is not just the emphasis of this text. It's the emphasis of the entire New Testament. Like, the, the Great Commission, what we call the Great Commission, the commissioning of Christ's church, is repeated not not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times in the New Testament is the Great Commission repeated. Each is slightly different, and each offers somewhat of a different perspective on the same teaching. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, uh, that's probably the one we're most familiar with. Uh, That's where Jesus emphasizes that he's the, the one true king whose authority the church is sent in. He says, all authority... And heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always till the end of the age. 
Mark 16, 14, 20 is another uh, great commission text, and it emphasizes the response of the hearers of the gospel, what you're looking for in the response of, of, of hearers of this gospel message. And it says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, Luke's great commission in Luke 24 emphasizes the work of Christ as the message which should be proclaimed. It says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And then, of course, Luke's great commission in Acts 1 as well, which we started out the sermon series with. It emphasizes the sort of pattern in which the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. It starts in Jerusalem, then it goes into the regions of Judea and Samaria in sort of concentric circles, and then it goes out even further to the ends of the earth. It's the pattern in which the Great Commission is to be fulfilled. And so what does the Great Commission text here in John 20 emphasize? As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What does that mean? What is he emphasizing here? Now, some have taken this text to mean that uh, that that the church's mission should be modeled after Jesus. Our, our sentness should be modeled after Jesus' sentness. He's, he's our example. And um, yeah, that's true in a sense. That, that is true in, in one sense, but that's not the fullness. That's not the, the sort of thrust of what Jesus is saying here, the main thrust of what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is that the mission of the church is a continuation of his mission. You see, because Jesus isn't merely our example, he's not merely our model, he's not some sort of guru that we follow. Uh, We do try to mimic his life, we try to mimic his example, but there's much more involved in this than that. He grants us this peace, his peace, so that we would be participants in his life and mission, so that we would also be an extension of his life and mission in the world, that we'd be extension of his peace that he has brought through his life, death, and resurrection. And that's true in such a way, Veritas, that you and other gospel churches uh, in the city of Dayton and all over the world are a continuation, an extension of the life and ministry and mission of Jesus. Like the local church is the presence of Jesus in the city of Dayton. The local church is Jesus Christ come to town. Like that, that prayer that we pray before communion, it's not just a cute saying, as this bread is Christ's body for us, send us out to be the body of Christ in the world. We are Christ's body in the world. His mouth, his hands, his feet, his ears. The church is the presence of Jesus Christ in the world. And this is something that's true of us as a corporate body, and it's something that's true of us as we scatter into our various spheres of life as well. This is something that's true of every single Christian. This commission does not just apply to cross-cultural missionaries, those who do missions and church planting amongst unreached people groups. This commission is for every Christian, this, every man, woman, and child who has been granted peace with the risen Lord is called to be an agent of that peace in some way, shape, or form in the world. It's, it's not going to look the same for everybody, you know, similar to how every part of the body plays a role in, in serving the church. We talked about that last week, how we are different parts of the body meant to serve one another in different ways. Well, every part of the body plays a unique role in serving the world as well. It looks different for the stay-at-home mom than it does for the pastor, than it does for the mechanic, than it does for the retired, than it does for the student, than it does for the fill-in-the-blank. 
But one thing is certain, these words, I send you, are given to every believer so that wherever God has placed us, it's there that we are called to be faithful to this commission. It's there that we have been sent. It's there where we're called to be a continuation of the mission of Christ. Everywhere you go, everything you do, you are there in doing what you're doing as an extension of the mission of Jesus Christ, even folding laundry. You're, you're in your home as an extension of the ministry of Jesus. You're in your place of employment as an extension of the ministry of Jesus. You're in your neighborhood as an extension of the ministry of Jesus. Now, that's a tall order. That's like, that makes me feel like I'm suffocating. That's overwhelming, isn't it? How can we, broken, sinful, messy people that we are, be an extension of the ministry of Jesus Christ? Well, next we see that the disciples of Jesus are equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit for this commission. And verse 22 says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, no doubt, our, our being sent as representatives uh, of Jesus and as the continuation of the, the mission of Jesus, it seems a recipe for disaster. And sometimes, there are disastrous things that happen. I mean, just, just think about the men in this room where Jesus shows up. I mean, there's James and John who, for some reason, could not get it through their thick skulls. But the most important thing in the kingdom of God is not having a high-ranking position. Or, or probably more aptly, Peter. Take Peter for an example. The last time he saw Jesus, just a few days earlier, before seeing him in this room, just a few days earlier, he had denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times he denied Jesus because he was afraid what might happen if he claimed to be a Christ follower. That's to say nothing of the other disciples in the room. There's 10 of them there. Judas and Thomas are not there, obviously. Judas is not there and Thomas is not there. We see that in in the following text of John here. So there's 10 of them there. And and all of them had abandoned Jesus In his darkest hour, when the heat was turned up, when Jesus was betrayed, when the Roman soldiers came, these guys fled. This is not the kind of crew you want to extend your mission, to continue your mission in the world. And and, and, we're not better than them. We're no different from them. We struggle with fear, guilt, and shame. They're so afraid. We struggle with fear, guilt, and shame. We're fickle, we're easily shaken, much the same as these disciples. We struggle with pride. We struggle with fear of man issues. We have short tempers, some of us, and more. We're we're weak, we're broken, we're, we're sinful human beings, just the same. But Jesus comes to us, and he grants us his peace and forgives us, and he sins, he breathes on us. The presence of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become, this is how we become participants in the life and mission of Jesus Christ. It's not something we do on our own. So notice he blows on them. Now, the original text doesn't necessarily say that he breathes on them. That's what uh, this translation says. And it's a fine translation. It's not a bad translation, especially considering that the word for spirit is the same word used to mean breath or wind. So he's, you know, blowing on them. That Obviously, he's breathing on them in some sense. 
But the word translated as breathe here is actually a rarely used verb that means to blow or to exhale. And it's, it's interesting because there's no other place in the New Testament where this word is used, but this word is used elsewhere in the Bible. It, it's, uh, it's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's used in two very telling places. It's used in, in Genesis 2-7, when the Lord uh, breathes the breath of life into our first parents. And it's used the second time in Ezekiel 37.9. And in Ezekiel 37, this is the part I want to focus on, in Ezekiel 37, the prophet Ezekiel is given a vision where he's taken up to this, this valley filled with, with dry, dusty bones. It's, it's these scattered bones of the deceased and decimated people of God. It's a vivid picture of the spiritual life of the people of God at that time. It's Ezekiel 37. And the Lord tells Ezekiel as he takes him in this vision to this, this valley of dry, I mean, it just emphasizes how dry, I mean, th- these people are dead, long dead. They're done for. And the Lord tells Ezekiel, he told them to preach to the bones. And so Ezekiel starts to, to preach to the bones and he's telling them to come alive. And as he starts to preach to the bones, the bones start to, to get up and clank and clatter around and connect to one another and become these skeletons. And, and then these skeletons, they start to be covered with, with sinew and flesh, but they're still dead. They're not alive yet. And then Ezekiel is told to tell the wind. There's wind blowing. And he's, he's told to tell the wind, the spirit, which is the same word for the word spirit to blow into these slain so that they may come to life. And so he says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe, there's that rarely used verb, breathe on these slain that they may live. And he says, so I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Now, this is a rarely used verb. And when we see words like that used, we should kind of perk our ears up. Its, it's use here is clearly beckoning us to see the connection with Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And with the context of Ezekiel 37 in mind and of the blowing of the Spirit by Jesus here, it means the recreation of the people and temple of God. It means that Jesus is giving his people the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit so that the church will become an army of his representatives and ministers in the world. Let's be clear about what that means. Because when we start using words like power and army, we could get in trouble really quickly. So let's be clear about what this means because there's a whole lot of people out there who claim to be representing Jesus in the world today. They use words like that, power and army and and, and the like. So let's be clear about what the Spirit is empowering us for. He's empowering us to be representatives and ministers of Jesus in the world. But then the question comes, how should we uh, represent Jesus in the world? It's not enough to say that the Spirit is empowering us to be Jesus' representatives. We need to look at the life and ministry of Jesus to see what he was empowered by the Spirit to do in order for us to see what the Spirit is also empowering us to do. And we should say right, right off the bat that there are some differences in what Christ was called to do and what we're called to do as rep- representatives of him. Like we're not Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We don't die on the cross for the salvation of sinners. We're sinners. We're the sinners who need saving. But our life and our character and our work in the world, as we are granted this peace with him, 
Our life and character and work in the world should be an echo and a reflection of his life and character and work in the world. And so if we had to sum up the life and work of Christ in two words, we could probably do that with the word service and sacrifice. Jesus even says in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give it his life as a ransom for many. That's what he came for. That's what he was sent for. There's very few times in the, in the, in the Gospels that Jesus says, I came or I was sent for this. It'd actually be a fascinating study if you have the time to, to go look at all of those texts in the, in the Gospels when Jesus says what he came for, what he was sent for. In Mark 10, 45, he says that he came not to be served, but to serve. So we can conclude then that therefore what the Spirit is empowering the church to do is not to be served, but to serve. Now, I know that those two words, power and service, might not typically go together in our minds, but nonetheless, that's what Jesus was sent for. That's what he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do, and that's what the Spirit empowers us to do as well, to serve. And, you know, consider what that means for your home life. Consider what that means for your presence in your neighborhood. Consider what that means for your presence in your place of employment. So the, the, the purpose of your presence in these places is not to be served, but to serve. Your home is not a place of escape or refuge. It is the arena in which you serve. Your place of employment is not just a place for you to collect a, a paycheck. It is the arena in which you serve. Your neighborhood isn't a random place that you just happen to land in. It's the arena in which you serve. That's where Jesus placed you and sent you to, to serve. Pick up the towel and the basin and get to work. The Spirit empowered you to serve there. And the Spirit empowers us for the purpose of sacrifice. Again, we we don't sacrifice ourselves to, to forgive the sins of others or even for our own sins. Jesus is enough for that. But we're called and the Spirit empowers us to follow Jesus and living sacrificially to make his presence and message known in the world. So don't miss the fact that Peter, he's a good example of this. Peter, one of the ones who is present in this room, he had just denied Jesus just a few days earlier. And this is the same man who in Acts 3, 4, and 5 declares the gospel boldly and is even arrested and he's beat for doing so. What changed? The ascension The resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has made him a faithful representative of Jesus Christ. What about us? It it may not be an arrest or a beating or or something of that sort, but what sort of sacrifices is is the Spirit empowering you for? Perhaps it's picking up and and moving across the world and giving your, the rest of your life to a people group who had never heard the gospel. I'm praying that that's true of some of you. Maybe it means in a few years being sent out from this church to be a part of a, another church plant that this church sends out. So just right after you got nice and comfortable in this one. Maybe it means signing up with safe families and welcoming young children into your home. Maybe it means, means increasing the amount of your giving here. Maybe it means something different for each and every person and each and every family. But here's what I do know is that you are called to sacrificially participate in the mission of the church and the Holy Spirit has empowered you to do so.
He's empowered us to be Jesus representatives and ministers in the world, which means that he's empowered us to serve and live sacrificially to do just that. But, so those are characteristics that should mark us as representatives of Jesus. But there's also a message that we're called to announce, and this is what I want to look at last. We're, we're not sent into the world to be a people who serve and sacrifice, or to not just be a people in the world who, who serve and sacrifice. We're called to do that, absolutely. That's our character. We are called to that. But also, in addition to that, we're called to be messengers and heralds for the one who sent us. And to know what that message is, lastly, lastly, we need to look at the announcement. So we, we've seen that we're commissioned. We've seen that Christ provided the equipment for that commissioning. And lastly, we see that what we're to say as we go. Verse 23 says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now to say that this passage has some controversy surrounding it would be an understatement. Uh, There have been a few different interpretations of this verse in the church, as you could imagine. And uh, most problematic and maybe most well-known being the the Roman Catholic Church's interpretation. They use this this verse as sort of a a mushy, kind of flimsy uh, foundation uh, as... uh, 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 for their practice of, of priestly confession and absolution. Uh, now, you may or may not be familiar with that, that particular practice. Uh, a member of a Roman Catholic parish will go to their priest, they will confess their sins, and the priest will absolve them of their sins. It's a sort of transaction. You sin, you confess, the priest forgives you, you're good to go. And I think they're supposed to do it before Mass every week. And so this is how they interpreted that verse. Their entire theology of it is based on this particular verse. The Reformers, though, they correctly countered this interpretation by saying that there's nowhere in the New Testament that we see an example or command for any such practice. We don't see the apostles doing this in Acts. Paul and the other apostles never tell churches to employ this practice in their epistles. And Paul's pastoral epistles uh, to the um, pastors in these local churches, First and Second Timothy and, and Titus, uh, he, he never gives as much of a hint that this is the sort of practice that's to be employed by the ministers there. But we do see the apostles obeying this command. We do see the apostles adhering to this particular practice, but they do so in a specific way. You know what we see the apostles doing in Acts and in the epistles? We see them proclaiming the gospel. We see them announcing that the forgiveness of sins has come in Jesus Christ and that everyone should repent of their sin and trust in him. We see them warning that those who do not repent will face eternal judgment when Christ returns. That's exactly what this text is talking about. He's saying, go and announce the forgiveness of sins and announce the warning that comes for those who do not repent for the forgiveness of sins. We see Peter in Acts 2.38 do this. Just to give a few examples, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We see him say in Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. In Acts 10.42, Peter said, And Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. With great confidence and great authority, they announce the forgiveness of sins and the terms on which God forgives, namely repentance. And they warned of the coming judgment 
And for those who repented, they baptized them. That's how they understood the words of Jesus. That's exactly what they were employing in order to obey verse 23 here. That's how they understood the words of Jesus. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And that's indeed what Jesus was calling them to do. Not not to set up confessional booths, to offer absolution as a kind of transaction. He was calling them to announce the gospel, to announce that the forgiveness of sins has come in Jesus Christ. And he was calling them to announce the warning of judgment for those who do not respond in repentance and faith. And he's calling them to announce this gospel with confidence that it's true and to baptize those who repent. And we can be confident that that this message is true this morning. We can be thankful that this message is true this morning. We can be confident and thankful this morning that, that the forgiveness of sins has come. There's not a one of us who isn't guilty who hasn't sinned against God and our fellow man. We've sinned in thought. We've sinned in word. We've sinned in deed. We've sinned in what we've done, and we've sinned in what we've left undone. We haven't loved God with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. And so we're guilty. We're ashamed. We're fearful. We're riddled with this. And it's to us that Jesus has come, and he says, peace be with you, because with God there is forgiveness. There is peace with God in Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's wounds, because of his hand and his side that he shows the disciples, because of his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, there is forgiveness of sins. This is how he saves us, he forgives us. But then he doesn't save us without also sending us. He sends us into a world crippled by fear, guilt, and shame, the fear, guilt, and shame that we used to be crippled by. And he sends us into the world to be parables and proclaimers of that announcement. We're parables of it and that we've received the forgiveness of sins. We are ourselves those who have received peace with God through Jesus Christ, and we're proclaimers and that we hand over the goods. We tell others how they can get in on this. We're beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We're not sent in this world to, be, to, to merely be nice people. It's good to be nice. You should be nice. You should be a nice person. But you should be more than nice. If you believe this announcement and you're a recipient of it yourself, you should be working to get this announcement into the ears and hearts of those who haven't heard and believed. You need to tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your neighbors. Tell your coworkers, tell everyone, because if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's what we've been sent for. This is how we participate in the life and mission of Jesus. This is how we are an extension of of the mission of Jesus. And this is what the Holy Spirit empowers and equips us for. Jesus sends his disciples in the power of the Spirit to announce the forgiveness of sins. Our passage begins with Jesus showing up to his disciples with assurance, with an assurance of peace. And he shows them his hands and he shows them his side as a confirmation of that peace, that this peace has truly come and that has come in fullness in him. Veritas, you are participants in this peace. You have been given the peace of Christ. He has come. He has forgiven your guilt. He's covered your shame. He's turned your panic into peace. 
And because you're recipients of this peace, because you're participants in this peace, his words and our text this morning are spoken to you with the same weight and authority that they were to the 10 who originally heard them. I send you, you are sent. I send you as agents of my peace in the world. I send you as the Father has sent me. I send you to serve. I send you to sacrifice. I send you to announce the message of the forgiveness of sins. And I've equipped you with all that you need for this commission in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. May we wholeheartedly obey this commission. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for including us in your work in the world. I thank you for including us in your story and redemptive history. You didn't have to include us. You didn't have to, to, to give us the gift of being participants in Christ Jesus in his life and his ministry and his mission in the world. But you've given us this wonderful gift of grace. You didn't have to forgive us our sins. You didn't have to make peace by the blood of Christ's cross, but you did. Lord, and we ask that we would be so overwhelmed with gratitude, that we would be so overwhelmed with with love for you and love for our neighbor in response to this great truth, that we would also be agents of that same peace, that we would be representatives of Jesus Christ and his peace and his forgiveness to the world, to our children and our homes, to our roommates, to our spouses that we would be representatives of of Jesus and agents of this peace to our neighbors in front of us, behind us, diagonally, that we would be agents of this peace and representatives of Jesus and extension of the ministry of Jesus to our coworkers, to our friends. Would you empower us with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to do just that? Help us. Help us to be faithful. We, we know what we're called to. None of what I've said this morning is, is new. We've all heard this before. We know that this is what we're called to. But so often we're fearful. So often we're ashamed. So often we're hiding. Would you give us boldness? Would you give us Lord, such a a sense of shalom, of peace. Peace that passes all understanding so that we're never afraid again of making this message known, of announcing the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we, we need you and we need the presence and power of the Holy Spirit for this work. So would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen.